Hi, everybody, and welcome to the show. I have a beautiful conversation with a man who I think you'll find very inspiring. It's always my intention to bring a variety of guests to the show, and I wanted to talk to Omar, who you'll get to know in a moment, because he has such an incredible story of overcoming addiction. And for any of you that feel like you can't escape your childhood, you can't change something about yourself, whether it's addiction or something else, I hope that you find Omar's story and advice for you today helpful. Before we dive in, I want to remind you that if you're not signed up for my email list, please do. Just go to christinehassler.com. You can get your free coaching assessment when you sign up. And that's the way I communicate with you. I don't email you a lot, but we've got some exciting things coming up towards the end of the year. Steph and I are going to be releasing a breathwork and meditation series. And also I'm going to be inviting you to finish 2020 with a live course with me that's going to help all of us (laughs) process this year and prepare for next year. My intuition and sense of things is that when 2021 comes around, that magically everything's going to shift. I think we have more intensity ahead of us, not to be scary or promote fear. The last thing in the world I want to do is promote fear. But I do feel we're in an intense time of transformation and up-leveling, and we've got more ahead. So be sure to sign up at christinehassler.com so that you can know about everything that I'm inviting you to, to support you in having really those inner resources and that inner foundation to process this year and to navigate the next year and also really find joy and peace and fun in your life too. Because it's also okay during this time of intensity to find joy, to find peace, to have fun, because all those things make us better equipped to deal with everything that's going on. So let me tell you about my guest today, Omar. Omar Pinto is a gifted storyteller, public speaker, and life coach specializing in addiction recovery and emotional healing work. He is the host of the incredible popular Shar Recovery Podcast. He delivers a powerful message of overcoming drug addiction and an inspirational 16-year journey of recovery. Omar is a successful self-made entrepreneur, is married to a soulmate, and lives in Costa Rica. He's transformed his life through recovery, personal development, and coaching, and now he helps people all the world do the same. So enjoy my conversation with Omar. Omar, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Hello, Christine. What an honor. I am super excited to be here. Oh, I love your energy and I know everyone will too. And there were many reasons I wanted to have you on. Um, I'll start with the primary reason. I want to talk to you about alcohol and addiction. And this is something that is more prevalent than I think that we may realize. I think there may be people who have a bit of an addiction problem and don't realize it or realize it and don't quite know what to do. And I was just looking at some recent statistics and it seems like alcohol, not seems, it's reported right here, that alcohol sales have gone up by nearly 30% during the pandemic, which means that alcohol, drugs, those types of things are still one of the most popular coping strategies for times of stress. So I'll, I'll get to your story in a moment, but I'd love to ask you, because I know you specialize in recovery, why do you think that during a time when our health is paramount, that alcohol sales have gone up so much? 
you and I are very much into the personal development space and, and also wellness and health and breathing and meditating and you name it. But the, the truth of it is, is that going into a pandemic like this, um, especially people that are struggling with alcohol addiction or any kind of addiction, really, this fear and this uncertainty drags them right into you know, their, their vices into their, into their bad habits, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, the, what, what they do is they just soothe themselves, right? They, they lose their job. A lot of people are dealing with this Mm -hmm. loneliness, like this overwhelming feeling of loneliness. Um, a lot of, the the people that I basically deal with are people that end up alone. And so they can't go visit their loved ones. Their loved ones can't visit them. Mm-hmm. They're over 40, yeah, I would say probably over 50. And it's just eating them alive. So yeah. yeah, yeah, that's it's super, super sad because their coping mechanisms are limited. And so and I'll tell you, you know, what, what the solution is. But while they're in that place, it's hard for them to see the silver lining or decide, hey, this is a good time for me to go inward. Uh, this is a time. This is a good time for me to like do some work on myself. It's more like, oh my God, when is this going to be over? When is this going to end? Is my life going to go back to normal? And as the days go by, they can't help themselves. Yeah. They need something to soothe themselves because if you think about what anxiety and overwhelm does to people. You know, it's a little scary to think where your mind goes if you don't have something to, 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 you know, cut the edge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, let's back up and talk about your journey. Cause you've been sober now 17 years. So I'd love to hear, you know, what you think led you to addiction and what was the turning point. And I'm sure that there were probably multiple t- turning points of different degrees. No one gets sober overnight. Uh, so I'd love you to unpack a little bit what that journey was like for you because, and again, for people listening, we all have addictions, whether it's addiction to a substance or an addiction to worry or anxiety or work or people pleasing or whatever it is, but chemical addictions, especially they, they I know for me in coming off antidepressants, because there was an actual chemical that I was getting off of, it created a whole nother physical layer in addition to the emotional and mental layer. So I'd love for you to share a little bit about what your journey with that entire process was. Sure. It's super painful. And when you find drugs and alcohol as, as a youngster, and I was, uh, you know, yeah, I can't believe I used just the term youngster. And, uh, you know, and I started drinking when I, when I was 16 years old. Um, and I had, I was already in a tremendous amount of pain. I felt a lot of loneliness. I felt a lot of insecurity. Um, there was a lot of, you know, self-loathing it, terms that I use today that I didn't even recognize back then, but I just knew that I felt different. I was uncomfortable in my own skin. I was not a popular kid. You know, um, and I was constantly trying to find my way. I was just trying to just trying to find myself. And um, one of the things that I realized early on is, is I come from a, a background where my mother's a Jehovah's Witness. Um, so I was born into a very dogmatic, lots of rules, lot of structure um, environment. My mother's Cuban. My father's Colombian. So there was a lot of um, do as you're told. Children should be seen and not heard. We really don't want to talk too much about how you're feeling. 
We just basically want to tell you what needs to get done. So you need to get to go. You need to go to school and get good grades. You need to go to church and be, you know, proactive in the, in the religion. And you basically just, you know, you need to get in line, you know, and, and, and so there wasn't a, there wasn't a lot of opportunity where I could express myself with my parents. There wasn't a time where I felt even comfortable saying, Hey, I'm struggling in school. And I could, I could really use a tutor. I could really use some help. Um, it was, I always felt this incredible sense of, um, uh, impending doom. Like the other shoe was going to, was going to drop. I, I felt an incredible amount of fear, um, growing up. My parents fought like cats and dogs. I mean, like all the time. I, a lot of what I remember growing up was my parents fighting. So there was a lot of distress in the home. Um, and, you know, you never knew, like I'm, I'm my, on my way back home from school. You just never knew what was going to happen at home, what kind of mood dad was going to be in, uh, how much drinking dad was going to do. Cause my dad pretty much drank, um, every day. And, you know, he never really classified himself as an alcoholic, but you know, in today's standards, absolutely. Um, my family in general, on my dad's side, heavy, heavy drinkers. No one ever used the term alcoholic. Um, it was and just so, part of the culture. It was just part of what you did. Absolutely. It was just, you know, man up. That was really, you felt a lot of that. You felt a lot of the whole man up. And uh, I remember I was 16 years old. You know, my first job was like, ooh, this is great. Everybody's wearing a uniform. Everybody here is kind of like the same. I feel totally comfortable in this environment here. I'm making a little money. And guess what? I meet this girl. She's cute. She likes me. Wow. Ooh, I have a girlfriend now. Right. And so, you know, my mother's a Jehovah's witness and you're not supposed to even have a girlfriend until you're thinking about getting married. Anyway, one night I snuck out of the house to go to her house, you know, 16 years old, messing mm, around, kind mm. of, right? You know, you know, okay, I'll let your listeners, you know, figure the rest out. <laughs> anyway, we're at her house. It's like midnight and I hear my dad's van outside the house and I'm like, no, you know, and uh, so I call my dad and my dad takes me to this special park where, you know, we usually do our walkings. He says, listen, I don't care what you do with your life when you leave my house, but as long as you live in my house, you're going to live under my rules. You have two sisters that are younger than you and you have to set the example for them. So whatever it is that you think you're doing, that stops today. And you're going to break up with that girl, right? Mm. It was it was just there was just no like understanding, right? And so I and I actually did break up with my girlfriend. I actually went to school the next day. I broke up with my girlfriend and the next day I come home and I'm crying. I'm crying in my mm. room. My dad comes in my room. And he says, stop your crying. Okay. Stop your crying. Boys don't cry. Right. And you got better things to do with your time than waste them on some girl. Okay. Like work on your grades that suck, you know, and I just super comforting. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. No, it's just constantly man up, man up, man up, man up, man up. But here's the thing. I was not happy. I well, you was, were not really, you didn't feel loved. You didn't feel seen. I think no. it's beyond, and this is important and why I wanted you to share your story, is that this goes beyond not being happy. And we have to acknowledge the pain and the hurt of our childhood and be willing to 
be like, you know, my parents really messed that one up. Not from a place of blame and not from a place of victim, but really honoring our pain and honoring our journey because I think that that starts to elicit elicit self-compassion, which eventually we can get to forgiveness. And I'm sure now you know your dad the best he could given his his own addictions and his own environment and his own father and everything like that. But to grow up in a household where there's constant chaos, everybody's drunk, you don't want to know where the other shoe's going to drop. One, you weren't given compassion. Two, you weren't given a lot of love. And three, you were not taught any healthy coping skills. So what were you supposed to do? You know, And I want everybody listening to whether you relate to all or part of Omar's story to connect to that, that child or that teenager within you who in those moments felt totally lost and know that some of our struggles come from that child that, or young adult that felt totally lost. And we have to honor that and have compassion for it and then become the parent we didn't have to ourselves. And that's the piece that starts to change things. So sorry to interrupt your story, but I just wanted to interject that and just highlight, you know, this was, I I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, more than you just wanting to be happy. You wanted to feel safe. You wanted to be loved. You wanted to be seen. You wanted to feel like you mattered. I love when you interject, by the way. So you go right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You do it all the time in, in your coaching sessions with your, <laughs> on your podcast. I call it. I love it because you're on point. One of the key terms that you said there too is victim because I became a victim. That was the thing. As soon as I, I was 16 years old, man up, you know, I was scared of the kids at school. Mm. I was picked on and I was bullied as well. You know, my dad was my first bully. So it was just like this constant, like I felt like a victim without even knowing what a victim was. And when I drank my first beer at 16 and a half years old and my first house party, man, everything changed. Like all of those, that little itty bitty shitty committee that was running around in my head telling me you're not smart enough, you're not good enough, you're not enough, right? It just stopped. And I just remember feeling like me, like who I am today was set free when I drank my first beer. I just became gregarious and funny. Mm. And I was talking to everyone in the party and I had no fear. And there wasn't anything about me where I felt like I was not good enough to have a conversation with anyone else in that place. Mm. Liquid courage right away. Hmm? Liquid courage Mm -hmm. right away. And boom, from that moment on, I knew that this was the answer for me. I knew that now I had found the, the, the magic solution to courage, to be able to stand up to my father, to be able to stand up to the kids at school, to be able to pick up on girls, to feel confident, to feel, you know, accepted. And, and we started this conversation talking about people that are, you know, suffering in the pandemic that haven't gotten far enough along in their recovery to where they can withstand the triggers that come up when you have spent enough time away from the alcohol or any other drugs. And all of a sudden you start to feel these different feelings of fear and security. Um, uh, yeah, fear, insecurity, uncertainty. And all of a sudden it's like, Oh my God, this feels like, I don't know when, but uh, I need something. And the alcohol is going to be the, you know, the automatic solution. Well, if it's the end of the world anyway, then who cares? I might as well drink. I mean, I'm sure that those are some of the thoughts that are going through people's minds. And back then there was no pandemic. I was just 16 and a half years old feeling like I had 
freaking discovered myself. And from that moment on, my quest for life became going to parties, picking up girls, you know, and then and making enough money to keep it going. That was it. You know, I mean, I, and, and I remember just thinking to myself, if I just make enough money, then I'll always have enough alcohol and, you know, I can just you know, live this ultimate dream party lifestyle. Like seriously. Well, yeah, and it must have been much easier than actually dealing with your pain because yes. thinking about where you're going to get the next beer or the next girl occupies a lot of energetic real estate. Mm -hmm. And so you don't have to think about my dad didn't love me. I didn't feel safe at home. I grew up in an addict family. You just, you could focus on that. That's addictions are numbing, right? They numb the feelings, but they're also distractions where you don't have to deal with what you really need to deal with because you become so almost obsessive about managing, keeping the addiction up. Oh, absolutely. That's exactly what happens. And that's exactly what I did. I mean, for the next, I would just say for the next 14 years. Okay. So I was, this is back when I was, I was born in California. So I'm originally from, from the United States. I live in Costa Rica now, but, and I've been here for 20 years, but you know, for the first, the, for those 14 years, when I was 16 years old, up until I was almost 30 years old, right? It was just one job to the next job, making money, meeting people, partying, you know, and just, you know, trying to maintain that lifestyle. I, I started to face some of the consequences, but nothing major enough to where I would say, Ooh, I think I might have a problem with alcohol. No, it was always like, okay, I drank too much this night, so I'm not going to drink for two weeks. Ooh, I really, I got into a fight last night, so I'm not going to drink for two months. Oh, I got arrested and got a DUI. Oh, I'm not going to drink for six months, right? And so I just started kind of applying, you know, timeframes where I wouldn't drink based on, you know, the consequence that I was facing. Never once did I ever say, oh man, maybe I should consider, you know, not drinking. And so I'll tell you, a, you know, like one really cool turning point was I was about, I was just about to move to Costa Rica. I was a mortgage broker back in, in 97, right before the real estate boom really took off. So I was, I made it finally. Like I was now an entrepreneur. I was working for myself. I was making good money. And my dad came to stay with me. I had to be like 27 years old, something like that. And my dad came and stayed with me and we were, went out and we went to dinner and we had drinks and we, and we just like two adults hanging out. We came back to my apartment and my dad and I are sitting on the couch. He lives across from me and he says, you know, son, you made it. Like, I'm super proud of you. Mm. Yeah, that, that still fucks me up. So, you know, he, and, and let me tell you something. And this is what I tell my own clients, right? I go, you know, part of what you're holding on to here is, and part of the pain that you're refusing to release at this moment, because I, I start to well up. I start to cry whenever I think about that moment, because it's painful. It's painful to think that all that time, what all I, all I ever really wanted to hear or all I ever really needed to hear was, son, I'm proud of you. You know, and we all need that. We all need to hear really from do. our parents. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I love, I love, you know, all the work that you and Steph do with, with the uh, reparenting because it's really what's needed. We, we did not get the parenting 
that we needed. I mean, we, and we physically needed that parenting. We needed someone to say, Hey, listen, I understand you're struggling, but I'm here for you. You know, Oh, you're not doing well with school. How can I help you? You know, Oh man, you know, you broke up with your girlfriend. That sucks. I know what that feels like. It's going to be okay. I promise. Like, I I can't tell you how many times in my life it would have just been great to just hear it's going to be okay. Right. And I don't ever think I remember my parents ever saying that it was always like, you know, I don't even remember, right? Like, I don't even remember what kind of counseling I got because I, I, I'm, I'm probably just blocked it all off. Mm. But I know that in that moment, I, re- I couldn't, I couldn't tell you what that did to me in that moment. It changed me, right? Like, I'm staring at my dad, trying not to cry because he's the one who told me men don't cry, you know, and just trying to compose myself while my dad's telling me something that is the most tender thing he's ever said to me in my entire life. And I was 27 years old. Mm. You know, I was good in that place. I was really, really, really good at that time. But here's the thing, Christine, my God was money at the time. My God was money. Mm. And so it changed from alcohol to money. (laughs) Alcohol was at that time, alcohol was not my God, Mm. right? It it made me God. I see. Great distinction. Money money was my God, right? Cause here's the thing. I never missed a day of work mm. ever. Okay. I was a workaholic. Okay. I'll, I was the get it done guy. That's what they loved about me, especially in, in, in my firm, right? They, they, Oh, will do anything, anytime, anywhere. He's, he's good to go. But I was miserable, Christine. That's the key. That's the key. I was miserable. I would, I had a life where most people would say, Oh, it's got it going on. Oh, it's got it going on. And I was not happy because no matter how much money I made, it was never enough. And I would like hoard it. And I was like constantly, I would stare at the bank account and then I'm like, okay, I've got this much money. And if I save this right here and then be like, Hey, Oh, we're going to go out tonight. We're, I'm not going anywhere. What do you mean going out tonight? Okay. Well I'm buying. Oh, okay. Then I'll go. You know, I was mm. just, Oh, I was just not happy. They said, go to Costa Rica. I moved down to Costa Rica within 30 days of me moving to Costa Rica. I developed a horrific cocaine addiction. I'd basically walked away from my girlfriend, uh, met uh, my first wife (laughs) that I was going to marry and had a completely new identity, a completely new life. I was now an online casino general manager in Costa Rica, and I completely disconnected Mm. from Omar Pinto, mortgage broker, in California. Mm. Mm-hmm. And, and that's pretty common, right? When we're dealing, when we're running from <laughs> running from ourselves and dealing oh, with yeah. addiction is we almost form a new identity, right? It's like a constant. And I, I'm wondering too, when you unpack this, the self-loathing must get so intense sometimes that it's almost like you have to invent a new persona. Oh, that's exactly what I did. That's exactly the the alcohol was really the thing that muffled the self-loathing. I moved to Costa Rica, like I said, and absolute chaos, right? I I launched the casino. The casino does well. I start making money. Finally, the God of money arrives. I've got more money than I know what to do with, right? And I turn into a monster that I can't even stand to be in the same room with. And so ultimately, I get married to the girl that I meet when I move down to Costa Rica. I develop this horrific, you know, cocaine addiction. I turn into a monster, right? And 
like within four years, the business goes under, I lose my, I lose my wife. She's pregnant with, with our daughter and I've lost my friends. I've lost mm. my business. I'm basically, I'm almost broke. I'm just by myself. And, um, one day I had done way too much drugs. And at some point I realized, oh my God, like I could, I could like, I have no idea how many drugs I've just taken. I could die. Mm. And I just remember thinking, oh, that wouldn't be so bad. Mm. That would not be so bad. And I said, I said, God, I don't know who you are or what you are or if you're even are, but I'm ready. I'm ready to go. You know, like I'm, I'm not serving any purpose here. You know, my, my, my wife's eight months pregnant. I'm a complete train wreck. I can't stop using and I hate doing drugs. So you know what? Let's just do a do over. I'm ready. I'm ready. And, uh, I woke up the next morning and the only thing that I remember, this is what alcoholics call a moment of clarity. And I just remember this therapist who had said to me, I can't help you. This was 10 months before this. He goes, you know what? I can't really help you. You're an addict. And what I've seen work for people like you is 12 steps. And that's the only thing that I heard and saw that morning when I woke up after praying for death mm. and I got up, I got dressed, I drove to his office and I said, listen, man, I need help. Can you help me get to one of those meetings? Mm. He says, I'm so glad you're back. I am so glad you're back. Here's the directions. The meeting starts in one hour. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. No, it was a God shot. God took over. Cause when I, I, I realized now when I prayed that morning for death, God was waiting for me to stop praying the foxhole prayers. I promise yeah. if you just get out of this mess, I'll never do it again. Like he knew I was serious. So he sent me that vision. I went there. The meeting was starting in an hour. I get there. I say, hi, my name is Omar. I'm an addict and I need help. And they said, you're in the right place. Mm. No. And then a few months later, my daughter was born. I was a few months sober. And I remember being in the delivery room after I'd lost everything. And the only thing I had in my entire life was a few months sober and my little daughter in my hands, right? Because my, my ex-wife now, my ex-wife um, was, she just, she had a cesarean, so she was out cold. Mm. And I was fortunate enough to be there in the delivery room holding my, my daughter all by myself because everybody was gone. Like no one else could be in there but me. And I'm sitting there holding my few hours old little daughter. She's fast asleep in my arms and I just broke into tears, you know, and I was you know, just God help me. Mm -hmm. I do not want to be some drug addict piece of shit dad, you know, for this little girl, she deserves so much better than that. You know, I, I can't even imagine her being 16 years old and her friends asking her, Hey, what does your dad do for a living? And her having to say, my dad died of a drug overdose. Mm. I need you to help me, God. And that's when I really, 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 really connected for the first time on a spiritual level, not a religious level and not a, everything I ever knew about religion or God. I just knew that something was there. I knew that there was something so much more powerful than me surrounding me ever since that moment where I prayed for death. He's just been kind of guiding me along, getting him into this moment. Right. And as I'm praying and I'm crying all over my daughter, I could just feel like this warm kind of blanket, yeah. like come around me and like kind of hug me, you know, and it just felt like 
it's going to be okay. It's going to, it's going to be okay. You're going to be doing a lot of work. <laughs> okay. But you're going to get through this. Right. And I just, I just remember thinking, I don't care what I got to do, man. I don't care what I got to do. And so that's exactly what I did. I got, I went into the 12 steps. I got myself a sponsor. The sponsor said, are you willing to do, you know, are you willing to do whatever it takes? Right. And I said, yes. And he goes, I know. Are you willing to go to any lengths? And I said, yes. He goes, do you know what that means? I said, no, you know? And I said, but I don't care. Cause you know, just tell me what it is I got to do. And he says, okay, well, here are the suggestions that I want you to do, which is 90 meetings in 90 days. You're going to be working these steps. You're going to meet with, with me every Monday and we're going to go over them. Right. And these are non-negotiable suggestions. So if, if, if these do not work for you, then you need to find another sponsor. Right. And this guy was just so cut and dry. And so like in my face, I said, this is my guy, you know, this is what I need. Um, and that's what I did, you know, mm. and, and I, I got through my first year and, you know, I got through my first year and, um, I started sponsoring guys and this, this I'm a coach, you know, I'm, I'm a life coach today. Um, and it, that was my first experience with coaching. I had no idea that I was gifted with the ability to coach people. And it really became clear to me when I started sponsoring guys. And yeah. so for the next 10 years, I was like this absolute, you know, 12 step militant where, I mean, I'm going to meetings, I'm sponsoring guys, I'm doing service. I am speaking at meetings, right? I was, I was evolving. I was becoming in those meetings, the, you know, becoming the man that I am today without knowing exactly what I was doing. I just knew that it was making me a better man. It was making me a, a really good father. What do you think, you know, cause I know so many people relapse, they have mm -hmm. a rock bottom moment. They start to get some hope. And then, and this can be relapsing from anything, not just drugs and alcohol. And then something happens. The pain comes back, a trigger happens, and they relapse. And then, of course, the shame comes up about relapsing because we've made promises to ourselves and to others. When you're working with your clients, especially on recovery, how do you help them through the shame, especially if they feel like they've messed up? Number one is, is recognizing that what you do is a culmination, is, re is really a direct correlation to all the trauma and all of the wounding that you have experienced in your life that this behavior is just a manifestation of your internal guidance system trying to direct you. It's just trying to guide you and direct you. And so sometimes the only way for it to get your attention is to get you to do some stupid shit, you know, and ultimately that that stuff that you do will get you some consequences. And hopefully those consequences will lead you to people like me or Christine or people in a 12 step fellowship because it's in those rock bottom moments. Like for me, for example, it was, it had to be rock bottom for me to let go of the ego, ask for help. And when somebody told me, are you willing to go to any length? And I just said, yes, without going, well, what is exactly does that mean? You know, as soon as that went away, that's really where I recognized that, you know what, my best thinking got me here. And a lot of times that's all it is. It's just, 
You're thinking, you're overthinking this. You're not a bad person. You just done some bad mm -hmm. shit. And ultimately what I do is I help people start making amends, not just to the people that they've harmed, but to mm. themselves. That's, that's huge. So for people that get really stuck on that one, who really love the self beat piece, <laughs> uh, what, what advice would you have to get to the other side of that? Because I know personally and professionally how important self-forgiveness is, but it can be a tough one to get to. Well, here's what I tell people too. I go, look, here's the thing where you've gotten to right now, there's like this timeline of wreckage. And so right now, what you're focusing on is your past. You're focusing too much. You're giving your past too much power and too much energy. And if you go back five years, 10 years, and you're beating yourself up over those things that you've done, and then you go to a meeting or you're two days sober and you're wondering why, oh my God, why don't I just feel better? Why do I still feel like crap? Why do I still feel like a piece of shit? You know, why, why do I still like wake up in the middle of the night thinking about what I did to my wife and what I did to my kids and what I did here and what I did there? And I say, look, it took you all this time to get here. You just got to give yourself a little bit of time. Every day that goes by, that you can take some credit for something good that you have done. It starts to build some self-worth and some self-esteem. And the thing about addicts and alcoholics is we desperately crave instant gratification. And this is no different. They want recovery to be instant. They want their life to go back to normal instantly, just like people in the middle of a coronavirus. You know, I just want things to go back to normal. Do you really? Because I don't know. For some people, normal sucked. They hated their job. They hated their spouse. They hated a lot of things, right? And so if we look at this event that brought you here to this moment, this is the starting off moment. It took you 10 years to get here. It's not going to be overnight for you to feel like you've earned it. You're going to have, you are going to have to do some work. You are going to have to earn it. You are going to have to surround yourself with community. You're going to have to surround yourself with people that are where you want to be, and you're going to have to let them guide you, and you're going to have to start modeling them. And as the days go by that you are one day further away from all that wreckage, you are going to start feeling better. You're going to start feeling more empowered. You're going to start feeling like, wait a minute, you know what? I think I can trust myself now. And as soon as you feel like you can trust yourself, that is almost like the beginning stages of the forgiveness piece, okay? But really, and, and what I love the most about what you talk about too, Christine, is that negative self-talk. Like first thing you got to do is you got to catch it. You got to catch that negative self-talk when it's telling you, oh man, what's the point? And this is going to take forever. And, you know, we're never going to get our wife back. And what's the point anyway? Sometimes the only reason why you drink is because you listen to that little voice inside you. And that's why you need to have really good people by your side to tell you, no, nah, man, you can't listen to that voice anymore. You got to start listening to a new voice and let me help you find it. So as we start to um, wrap up, I would love you to speak to people who may have a little thought in the back of their mind. I could have a drinking problem or I could have a little issue with fill in the blanks. 
How does someone know if they truly have an addiction? Good question. Good question. The best way to answer that is if you, if you're asking that question, Mm -hmm. if you're actually asking, I wonder if I have a drinking problem or I'm wondering Mm -hmm. if I have a drug problem, then guess what? You probably do. Mm -hmm. Okay. Cause people that don't have one really never, ever find themselves asking that question. And again, going back to the little voices in our head or the, or the dialogue that happens, everyone has an internal guidance system inside them. I only recognize that now after years of coaching and masterminds and personal development and therapy and you name it, right? Um, and recognize that I've always had that voice inside of me guiding me. I just refused to listen. There was another voice that was a lot stronger inside of me going, don't listen to that voice, right? It's going to serve us. It's not going to serve us. But the truth of the matter is, if those questions start to surface, give them some space, right? Hold space for them. Honor, honor that, that question, honor that voice inside of you that says, Hey man, you know, we might have a problem here with alcohol. We might need some help. And let me tell you for right now, you know, when we started this conversation about people drinking and the coronavirus, what happens is that the people that are relapsing right now ultimately find themselves the some of them will find their way into my membership community okay and in there it's it's called the the SRC the share recovery community and in there we we probably do somewhere in the neighborhood like 15 online zoom meetings a week mornings wow. new morning times uh, uh midday and evening calls so we cover you know, most of the, most of the time zones, right. To give people, especially right now where people have the time. Okay. So there's a lot of meetings, but here's the thing. Here's what we find. Most of them are drinking cause they're lonely and they're desperately needing community and mm-hmm. connection. Yeah. That's really, if, if you want, if you want first steps, first steps to try and combat, you know, the relapse that you're currently going through, chances are you're alone chances are that you are soothing yourself through this overwhelm, through this fear, through this uncertainty, through this loneliness. And what you, all you need, all you need first step is the right community, the right connection, an opportunity to turn on the zoom camera and say, Hey, my name's Omar. I'm an addict and I need help. Mm, I love that. That's the most important step admitting that you need help and going out and getting it and trust and knowing that you're worthy of help too. And I think that was huge for you in that moment when you felt like your life wasn't worth living some part of you. Um, and, and God bless the timing of the birth of that for your first daughter, what a soul contract there. And God bless the part of you that knew you were worthy, that knew you were worthy. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Um, before I ask my last question, you mentioned your recovery support group. Where else can people go to connect with you and learn more about everything that you do, including your coaching? The best way to find me is two websites, and that's got everything. So go to thesharepodcast.com. Share is spelled S H. A-I-R. And there you will have all the podcast episodes. You'll have information about the share recovery community. You'll be able to connect with me, right? And there's all kinds of free resources on there as well. Or you go to omarpinto.com 
And there you can have all the information about one-on-one coaching with me, all my social media connects. Everything is on both of those two sites. It's the easiest way to get to connect with me. Beautiful. And we'll link those in the podcast. So for people out there who are feeling lonely, who are feeling stressed, who are feeling like, cause I think drinking is, is two big, two main things more, but we'll just say these two loneliness and depression and everything that goes along with that. And also anxiety, just massive anxiety around uncertainty. So for anyone in either one of those boats that is tending to reach for the bottle or any kind of numbing strat numbing device. What, what would, what do you want to say to those people? Now is, I know it feels like it's the worst time ever, but now is the best time in history ever in the world where you can go into Google and you can type in online support, alcohol, free support, sobriety, support, online meetings, and you are going to have so much access to support groups online for free. It is mm. incredible. Do yourself a favor. And you meant Christine just mentioned something super important. There is these two words, worthiness and deserving. And what prevents so many of us from reaching out and going into a place that's brand new where they don't know people. They desperately need community. They desperately need connection. But there's this little voice that says, you're not good enough. Mm -hmm. You're not deserving of that. You know what? You're not worthy. They're not going to accept you. They're not going to like you. There is, that's the only thing preventing most people from going online and finding the community that's right for them. Mm -hmm. Give, give yourself a chance, Right. Fight that inner voice that says you are not worthy because if you are still breathing, there is still hope. Mm. Thank you, Omar. Thank you for being a voice of hope today. Appreciate you so much. Oh, Christine, I appreciate you so much. And thank you for your podcast. I use it to, you know, next level my coaching. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're all growing together. That's for sure. Oh, yeah. Oh, and I love Steph. Big shout out to Steph, my brother. Me too. Me too.